0: And I didn't read my first book cover to cover until the age of 23, uh, and since then I've read probably about 1,200 and counting. Um, and you know, I started to realize that you know everyone's got a different version of intelligence. And if we were to judge a fish's intelligence by its ability to climb a tree, you know, I think Albert Einstein would would think fish are pretty pretty darn stupid. I just hadn't learned how to you know tap into my potential at that point.
1: What are you doing to create your dream life or your best self? Why do we see some thrive through challenges while others struggle? Welcome to Effort, a podcast where I talk about the main F's in my life that have helped me in creating my best self, faith, family, forgiveness, food, fitness, and formula. Hi, my name is Amy Ladine, and most would say that I've had my fair share of struggles. Whether it was placing my baby for adoption at 18, facing my marriage ending affair, or battling stage four cancer for almost seven years, it's safe to say that I've been through a lot. Join me as I take you through my story, my journeys, and share with you the tactical strategies every single week that will help you thrive and overcome anything you face. That's right, I'm going to show you how to create a future self that you'll be proud of. So, buckle up, get ready for the ride as I take you through my story and bring other guests on that have helped me along the way. So, I can't say that I've ever done an interview at midnight, but today I would have jumped through hoops to do whatever it takes to have this special person on my podcast. Today, you are going to hear from the one and only Kerwin Ray. Now, if you're in Australia, you know this guy because he's a big deal. He's kind of a big thing when it comes to Australia. And I know now, um, at least for me in the US, he's like the the Tony Robbins of Australia meets business coach. Um, you know, holistic psychologist, kind of a combo of all of them. But Kerwin is one of Australia's leading business strategists. You know, he has helped over 100,000 people, you know, through his seminars, his workshops. I love that while, you know, he is a business coach, if you were to follow him on social media, you will soon see that he really works on you. It's not like you're going to get some business blueprint on his main front. And instead he's going to really poke and push and dig into what is it that's holding you back. And there were a couple videos that I, you know, came across over the last couple of years that really just turned me on to Kerwin and I became an immediate fan and had the opportunity to be on his podcast and was so honored when he was willing to come on mine because I'll tell you what this guy is a very busy man and is in high high demand. So I am so honored to have today Kerwin Ray on the podcast. Okay, so it isn't often that I get really nervous about an an episode, but today having Kerwin Ray on here, you know, I'm a little bit starstruck. So I said to him that I, I had to do the the intro before the intro because. I really do like to edify people that have had such a, a pivotal you know, um, shift on my own life, and I love that he brings the strategy. So, Kerwin, thank you for coming on here today, and I hope I said it right.
0: You did. Absolutely, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Look, I, honestly, and you call me anything. I get called a lot of names. Kerwin, Kevin, Kieran, uh, Cannon, Cohen, but uh, yeah, you nailed it, Kerwin.
1: So I, you know, have attracted over the years, a lot of clients from Australia. So when I came on your podcast, I had told a couple of our employees that, you know, I was coming on and you are like the Tony Robbins of Australia. So those of you that maybe this is your first time having Kerwin in your circle, you're going to want to go and binge, you know, watch a lot of his stuff on Instagram. Ironically enough, the way that I found you and so this will become you know very interesting to people listening is you know i found you actually through all the touchy feely stuff and had no idea that you were like this massive business strategist so yeah and and we're going to go through your past but for me i share this specific clip every now and then on my own stories and that is when you had that skin issue yeah. and you went Katie through Kern. the therapy And I was so blown away because I was at that time going through a similar rim type treatment where you kind of go in your past and have this like forgiveness or, you know, um, towards the person. And I was amazed at what it did for me. So when I saw that, I'm like, I have to learn everything about this human. And then coming full circle, you're kind of also the Andy Frazella slash Tony Robbins slash. Joe Dispenza, and those of you that know me, <laughs> you're oh, kind of like funny. all three, because you're no-nonsense, and I love that, you know, but you also have this, you know, empathetic way with you, so, of course, when I started researching you, I was blown away by your story, so let's talk about, first of all, seven years old, you get diagnosed with learning disabilities to some degree, I mean, yeah. I'm sure ADHD was not as well-known, right, back then? No. Yeah. So, so walk me through that. How did you know? I mean, you obviously knew something was different Look, I, about
0: I, you. I, I knew I was, yeah, I knew I was very different from the rest of the kids in my class, purely because when it was time to work, they could put their head down and put pen to paper. And I would be looking around at what everyone else is doing and, you know, ultimately trying to get some of the attention that was um, displaced in other areas of the room. And, you know, I don't think it really dawned on me exactly. I don't think I'm, any kid really understands at the age of seven what ADHD Especially. really is. Uh, and I think I'm allergic to the term. Um, but i was a d h d dyslexic and I was more referred to as just you know um, uh, learning disabled that was probably the the label that really stuck with me you know, learning challenge Kieran has challenges when it comes to learning challenges when it comes to paying attention and you know I feel very blessed because i um I learned how to fail very early in life, and I think that 's not really a skill set that is framed or taught because every three months you get your report card so the way my life went from year one to year 12 is every three months I'd get a report card. And, you know, normally there was a a social acknowledgement to, you know, where you were at from the teacher and that was normally done, you know, class by class. So, you know, I was, I was told in every class just how underweight and how under average I was. And then at the end of the term, I'd have to do a parent and teacher interview. Um, with a a teacher and then I'd have to go home and show my mum the report card and she would have to reinforce, you know, the the challenges. And then I'd go and have to show my dad because my mum and dad live separately. And he would then reinforce. So it was almost like every three months I was being reminded of how stupid that I was. And so as a result, I just thought it was normal to fail. And I mean, you know, the only, you know, we have a few measures of success as kids, but one of the biggest measures that we have is our social interactions. And the most I guess you could say visible social interactions is our academic and our schooling interactions. So it wasn't a small thing, you know, it was quite a well-known thing that, you know, I was the, you know, (laughs) the, 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 the kid that didn't, that never matched up to his potential. Cause that's what the kid teachers go. Oh, he's got so much potential. If he could just focus, if he could just pay attention and um, yeah, by virtue of that, I, um, uh, it had a tremendous impact. I even had one of my, family members refer to me and I, they may have only said it once, but I grabbed onto this and they said, Oh, you're just so stupid. And I grabbed onto that. And so forever, and I didn't read my first book cover to cover until the age of 23. Uh, and since then I've read probably about 1200 and counting. Um, and, you know, I started to realize that, you know, everyone's got a different version of intelligence. And if we were to judge a fish's intelligence by its ability to climb a tree, um, you know, I think Albert Einstein would, would think fish are pretty, pretty darn stupid. I just hadn't learned how to, you know, tap into my potential at that point.
1: Wow. Okay. I'm blown away because I believe it was Malcolm Gladwell that did, they, he shared some studies of children that had, they call it in the States an AIP, right? Like you in school, you have a special file that basically means you are, you know, learning disabled. Sometimes they're pulling you out of class and how those students, if they can learn to harness that, they actually end up being more successful for the reason you just said. You're willing to fail. You're 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 you, you've already had to go through that, and I think sometimes it even helps us be more vulnerable. We have one of our five children. She had an AIP in in second grade, and so gets called out for math. And same thing, told all those things that you know you were told. The great thing is, all of her failing, same thing. She is willing to try anything. She's now 12 where she's not afraid to like go try the new sport something that some people would think is so simple yet when you see others that it's like when others are around they don't want anyone to see them failing where she's like I'll try it because she's just had I mean from grade two to four it was just knocked down constantly and told the same exact things
0: and I, I think it got to the point where not only had I learned how to fail I just expected that's what was that was what was going to happen um, and that was a real, that became uh, an asset because I think failure and having a great relationship with failure is critical in every area of life. But, you know, then I achieved an age where I realized I did have potential. I had to learn how to win. But what was interesting right. is in the pursuit of learning how to win and learning how to succeed, you know, what's inevitable failure. And I just had a different set of skills to, to be able to deal with that by then. Cause I just, and I've seen this in, you know, friends at school who are, who were a students and, you know, ducks of the class and sporting heroes. And the moment they, you know, encountered any resistance in their life or any failure in their life, you know, oftentimes I'd fall to pieces because they had no toolbox around dealing with failure. It wasn't something that they had um, learned how to adapt to.
1: And I think that's something that we see now. And we'll talk about that because I know that you have a son and it's something that, you know, I think, as a parent, it's like, you want to equip your parents, your kids with everything that maybe you didn't have and you know, more. So, okay. So by 18 or 19, you're addicted to drugs. So talk me through that from in case your parents divorced. Cause I just love, I love talking about the family system because I think a lot of people don't realize, yeah, Yeah, it it starts back then. Right.
0: My parents split up when I was six months old. Um, oh, wow. you know, so I, I used to see my dad for a period of time every second weekend, but there was a real void and I and I desperately wanted that void to be filled. Um, I was desperate to have like a full time dad in my life. And the dad, don't get me wrong, I've got a dad who's a great mate. Um, and he is my dad, and you know, we're building more of a relationship now than probably we've ever had before. But during those earlier years, for whatever reason, I never really fully bonded with my dad. Uh and I had two kind of scenarios, three scenarios actually. I had a couple of mates and I had one mate whose dad um, was a really nice guy, but then he would drink every night and whenever I'd sleep over, he'd drink to the point where he'd get drunk and he would beat his son across the face with an open hand. And when you're a six, seven, eight year old kid witnessing that, you start to go, shit, maybe I don't need one of these dads. But then I had another mate who had a dad who was the Disneyland dad, you know, everything he did was fun. Everything was high fives. Everything was, you know, sugar coated and candy coated. And so I kind of had this, this, this torn perspective but i knew i desperately wanted to have a dad and then um you know as a little side note here and this is not something that a lot of people know my mum, uh, she never really dated like she dedicated her entire life to us boys i had another i had a brother as well who was two years 10 days older than me and to her credit she was a very dedicated very loving mother and doing the very best job that she could and she finally met a guy and i was i think i just uh just before my ninth birthday uh or just after my eighth birthday i should say she met this american guy and they had this whirlwind romance. Uh, They got engaged and he flew back to the USA to um, sell up his property and come back to Australia. And he was murdered, Uh, he was beaten to death in his hotel room while he was there. He was beaten unconscious, he was put into a coma and they turned his life support off on my mum's birthday. And so that became, I guess you could say, probably one of the first significant traumas that really kind of gripped our family. Uh, And then by the age of 15, you know, I'd experienced a whole range of different social dysfunction and elements and ranges of family dysfunction. But I had my first near fatal accident. And I don't know if you can see on your cameras there, but I've got two very large scars on my wrist here. And that mm-hmm. happened as a result of me running down a hill with a bottle in my hand. And I tripped and I fell. And I had the bottle in my hand. I landed with the bottle in my arm and it broke. And I cut all my nerves, all my tendons, main artery. I had two blood transfusions, 13 and a half hours of microsurgery. And I was told that I'd be disabled. Like the doctors, I lived in Townsville, which is like a regional area over here. And back then, you know, going back, gosh, what are we talking 30 odd years ago now, 32 years ago, it it, it wasn't exactly a sophisticated medical system up there, but I had a doctor that did the best that he could. But the next morning when I came out, my mum was overseas, I was by myself and I had this doctor standing over me going, Hey kid, I hate to be the one to tell this to you, but, um, you know, you've had a significant traumatic event. Um, we've tried to repair everything we can. Um, but you'll be lucky to get 20, 25% use of your handbag, but don't worry, you'll be eligible for disability pension. And then I had to take uh, about 12 months, but call it nine months off school full time. I had to travel in, I was in a regional area. So I had to travel on a bus hour and a half into the rehabilitation unit, an hour and a half home. And then I'd have an hour and a half in the rehab unit. And that was, you know, in most cases, Monday through Saturday. Um, And I just worked my ass. So I couldn't go to school. Um, because I was, you know, I was basically in rehab for nine months. So it didn't really make much of a difference. I was fucking failing everything anyway. So, you know, and <laughs> my goal was really to rehabilitate my hand, but the damage was so bad. Like I even remember some of the physical therapists cause you know, we take so many things for granted. And one of the things you take for granted is like just touching the tips of your fingers. That took me about seven months to do just to be, wow. able, and I used to sit there with my hands shaking and, you know, tears pouring out of my eyes. And I just would refuse to quit until I got some form of movement. And I even remember one time, one of the nurses coming up to me and just going, let it go, when it's not coming back. And, you know, at the time I thought she was just being sweet, but in hindsight, I'm like, wow, what a mentality for a rehab nurse, you know, that's not ideal. Um, and so, you know, fast forward by, this time, by, by the age of 15, 16, 17, I had no academic. Uh, qualifications whatsoever. I'd failed everything. Um, I'd thrown myself into at this stage. I'd started martial arts at the age of about uh, 10, 11. And I just was obsessed with martial arts, was obsessed with bodybuilding, was obsessed with powerlifting. And so by virtue, I I ended up you know becoming incredibly strong, incredibly athletic, and incredibly good at combat sports. Um, and then as a natural consequence, I started to develop as an athlete. I started to compete as a bodybuilder. Um, and you know, I, I was placing second and thirds in national championships. And then it wasn't until I was like my 18th birthday. That's when I won my first, uh, state title. And then I won the novice men's title. And then I went on to, to win the nationals title. And that's when I started being introduced to amphetamines because at the time I was counting every single calorie that went through my body mm-hmm. uh, at the time, you know, from the age I can remember, I never went out and partied on the weekend with my mates. I used to, if, cause if I was, if I, if my day, you know, if Saturday was a training day or Sunday was a training day, you know, I've had a key to the gyms that I've trained at since the age of 14. I worked at most gyms that I trained at since the age of 15, managed gyms for five years before, you know, um, through school. And, um, so for me, most weekends I was training twice a day. And so I was never going out with my mates and getting on alcohol, but I got introduced to amphetamines to speed, uh, one afternoon at school, funnily enough. And, um, I still remember the first time that I, uh, you know, that I that that I took the hit um, of of amphetamines. It took about five minutes before I went. Well, I literally just sat back and I was like, "Huh, is this what it feels like to be normal?" Because you know, what amphetamine? Because I'm ADHD, and you know, one of the things right. kids with ADHD is often dexamphetamines and that's a way to calm. You know, I have a different, because of the trauma profile that I have, my brain adapted differently to other people's. And so I have different hormone profiles and all of a sudden I had an uplift in dopamine to the point which was probably considered to be biochemically a regulated hormone level in my brain with dopamine. Wait. And I was like, oh, I feel calm. I feel, you know, my mates are going nuts, but I'm like, oh, I feel really calm. And I'm, I'm like, God, oh, wow, is this, is this what it feels like to be normal? And just by virtue of that and then from there i left school got into the security industry and i was working some of the most violent venues um, in southeast queensland because i was very large i was very good at combat i was very i was an incredibly good communicator just by virtue of growing up in the environment that i did with a very um you know a a mum who used to like to communicate and just being involved in a lot of social activities and drama and bits and pieces i was just really good with people and so I used to get put into these incredibly violent venues because I, I could handle any situation. I could talk things down to the point where I could, in most cases, diffuse them. And if I couldn't defuse them, you know, I could carry someone quite large out. And if things kicked off, then in most cases I could handle myself and you can't really see the tapestry of my face, but I've got about, you know, about 15 different scars across my face. You know, I've been hit with wow. bottles across my face. I, I had almost lost this eye, uh, from, a. I've got the nerve to top of my head that was severed from a, from a glass being, uh, smashed across my face. I've, I've got that, I, I got hit in the head with a 4B2 with a, uh, a, a screw sticking out of it, almost went into my brain. It took a chunk of my skull out. I've been oh shot God. at, I've been stabbed. I've had a gun put in my mouth in the door of a club. And so I was working in a pretty high stress environment. And it, it seemed to me at the time, <laughs> amphetamines were a really good way to regulate that stress because it calmed me down. And right. you know, by virtue of the circumstance working nights, six days a week, you know, having a heavy training schedule on top of that as well. Competitive bodybuilder, competitive powerlifter. Um, it was the only way that I knew how to regulate my, uh, my energy patterns, regulate my, uh, my, my, I guess you could say my, uh, my autonomic nervous system, although it seems like quite strange. And yeah, I, I pretty much went off the, I didn't go off the rails. Like I was never robbing my mum or robbing people to pay for my addiction, but it got to the point where my addiction was causing some significant consequences in my life. I wrapped a mate's car around the tree one day and I was just, I was a very dedicated addict uh, and I guess, and I think most addicts are, but I'm obsessive. And that's where I'm very grateful to addiction. Cause one of the things addiction taught me is resourcefulness. Like when you're a fully fledged, committed addict, you will find, you will find your substance. You can go, you could be dropped in the middle of a fucking desert. And if there's, you know, your substance within 20 Ks, you'll sniff it out. And I was that guy, like I'd go to hang out with my mates and be like, who's got some gear? And everyone was like, "No, nah, no one's got any. Like, what do you mean no one? Oh, we've tried everyone. I was like, you've really tried everyone? And I'd start banging the phones and, you know, going and turning up on people's doorsteps. And sure enough, three hours later, you know, I'd be coming back with uh, the spoils of war. And my mates were always so amazed. It's like, they were like, man, you can always seem to get on. I said, well, it's not that I can always get on. I just don't quit until I exactly. do. Exactly and you know i and we laugh about it because and i guess it's not in one respect it is kind of a funny story but in another respect that's that is in many respects the downfall of addiction is you become obsessed and single-mindedly focused on this outcome uh where it saved me or ultimately saved me was when i was able to redirect that obsessive focus into other things you know, because if you can take that same level of relentlessness, that same level of determination, and you can apply it to being a salesperson, you know, which I did, and then you can apply that to learning about marketing, which I did. and You apply that to being a business owner, you know. People, oh, there's no, so, there's no customers around. Are you kidding me? There's a phone book right there. You know, ring a thousand people and tell me there's no customers in that phone book. And that's right. you know, that's the kind of uh, mentality I had. I was just so obsessively naive that I, you know, I, Counter the fact that my mom told me consistently about a million times from the day I was born, you can do anything you put your mind to, Kerwin. I just seemed to be able to, mm. from time to time, narrow that attention on things that I was interested in in order to produce successive results.
1: I love that. And I actually did not know this about you in terms of the, you know, young bodybuilding, powerlifting. I'm so fascinated by that because I do see a correlation. Um, you know, I've been a fat loss coach for over a decade, but do mostly, you know, mindset with it. And then I started getting into some of the business side of things and I'd meet people. And I would usually be able to tell right away if they had some sort of weakness or blind spot based on their physical appearance, because Mm -hmm. if they were a hundred pounds overweight or even 50 pounds overweight, I always knew, Oh, they've got something that they've still not worked through, whether it be some shame or sabotage or whatever. So the fact that you were able to master that area, because it's not like we need to stay in tiptoe. I don't want to have a six pack of abs forever because I know what it costs to get there. And sometimes the cost is not worth it, but I do see the power in everyone chasing at least to see their potential, right? And how that tends to be, you know, if you're looking at business successes, pieces of piece, at least to prove to yourself that you can, I I've seen a high correlation. Would you agree?
0: Everybody expresses potential in different ways. And as I said, you can't judge a fish's potential by its ability to climb a mountain. Okay. But you can judge its potential by putting it in the right environment where it can really shine. And, you know, some people have a knack to have six pack. You know, I, when I was in my, you know, prime condition. Yeah. I had six and and even a seven pack, but now I struggle for a three pack, you know, but I'm okay with that because I'm able to express my potential in other ways. It's not just about necessarily, um, how my body looks anymore, but yeah, I would agree. And I think too many people judge their potential by others, you know, and and comparison is a thief of joy. And if we're constantly Mm -hmm. comparing our potential against someone else's, we're never going to measure up because we're not comparing apples to apples, so
1: to speak. Right. Okay, now your rehab. that really also intrigued me because when you said you went through rehab, I don't think people can even like you know understand unless they've gone through something like that that you're making your way back when you're told you know impossibilities or you know just the the determination. So you know kind of something that it happened for you, you know going through yeah. that, would you agree?
0: the The physical pain of rehabilitation and because it, it was physical rehabilitation for. You know, for a limb that was no longer working, and it was probably, and this is where I'm so grateful because people often, and that, it's so interesting because whenever I do a seminar, I often lead with my uh, what I it's what I call my greatest hits. You know, failed every subject from year one to year twelve. You know, Disle- ADHD, dyslexic. You know, disabled. You know, um, and I don't tell people anywhere near the depth of all the traumas that I've been through. But then I sit there and go, here I am, you know, standing at the top of my mountain, being able to do what I do. Cause I think oftentimes what it comes down to is it's not the experience itself. It's how we interpret and translate that experience and what it actually means. And I know for me personally, you know, yeah, physical rehab is hard, but what, what greater gift could you give any child at their most, you know, at their most um, malleable, you know, at the age of 15, when you're a 15 year old boy, you're in the transition to manhood. You know, you've got mm-hmm. your hormones kicking in and you are, your brain is so plastic. Your brain is so malleable. You are so, you're like a piece of plasticine. That whatever you get exposed to is going to determine how you craft yourself. And I got exposed to, you know, massive physical and mental trauma. I got exposed to massive levels of, you know, pain, discomfort, and just through the process of rehabilitation. And I had no idea because at the time I was like, "Why me? Why me? Why?" You know, because only twelve months previous, not even twelve months, almost to the day, I had a motorcycle accident. Like earlier, snapped both the bones in my wrist in my left arm, but I snapped them so badly that my it was almost a compound fracture. I had my wrist. My right hand was down here. I had the two bones almost sticking through up here, but the rehab on that was six months. Like I had six months of rehab for my wrist and I was like, I only just got out of one rehab. I'm now going into another rehab. First, it was my left hand. Now it's my right hand. You know, so I don't even know which hand I can wipe my bum with anymore. It was like, I was, (laughs) but, (laughs) but what was interesting is I learned at the age of 15 that I could overcome a massive obstacle. I learned at the age of 14 that I could overcome a massive obstacle. 15, I got given a mad obstacle. But then by virtue, completely unconsciously, I didn't realize that I, I got taught resilience. I got given you know, a, a nine-month, 12-month, 18-month boot camp in resilience and, and grit development. And right. you know, people often look at the way that I hand to and down. They go, oh, man, you don't seem to get ruffled. I said, no, I got ruffled ages ago. I used to get ruffled ages ago. I've been through that boot camp. And don't get me wrong, I, from time to time, I can still get ruffled, but I've done the work. Uh, and that, that accident at the age of 15 was my apprenticeship in life.
1: Wow. That's so powerful. So let's talk about the work because, um, you know, never, I never want to discourage someone, but I really do like people to know, like just the work that it goes into, you know, changing yourself. Like, yes, know that you are malleable. I mean, I think that, you know, growing up in my era, it's like, we learned about the brain. It was like, this is the brain. This is basically where you're at and nothing's ever going to change. And even into my early thirties, like I wasn't you know I wasn't really around a holistic approach I was pretty much western medicine with everything just get on a medication you know the therapy that I'd been involved in has been basically tell your story and they kind of give you the great advice that makes you feel better and then send you home I'd never done any of the like you know you've got some child wounds Amy you need to like reparent yourself or you've got the mother and father wound where at what point because you started businesses at 23 but this not the business that you're in now um, where did you see that you needed to start to, especially I'm really fascinated with the regulation of yourself consciously. I know we'll get into meditation, but what, what happened for you to get there?
0: Look, I, I think it was a, a combination of a lot of factors. You know, I'm very grateful. My, my, my old, my dad was, you know, one of the top economists in um, the Southern hemisphere. My mum, you know, was a great clairvoyant and a psychic who also was quite entrepreneurial at the same time. And so I got exposed to a lot of alternative concepts at a very early age. You know, I had a mum that used to talk and channel and, you know, do all sorts of readings, you know, from before I can remember. Um, But I guess you could say it was probably in my mid twenties. Um, I was on my second or third business at this point. I'd made a lot of money for myself and for my business partners. Um, And at the time I thought I was unfairly being kicked out of this business. Cause it was, a, there was three people in this business. There was myself and my business partner and we were joint venturing with the actual owner of this business. And we'd blown this business up. Like we'd taken a 400,000, 8 million in a very short period of time. It was a profit share scenario. And by virtue of the threat that I'd become, I got removed from this thing. And I was so it bent me so far out of shape. And I remember I walked into a travel agency and I literally, there's a big map of the world. And I was like, where are the most spiritual places on the planet? And, um, You know, they looked at me a bit weird and then a lady jumped up with a pen and paper and she started going, that cradle of life in Africa and Machu Picchu in Peru and these places in, you know, in Egypt and South America and all these different places started popping up. And I was like, right, I want to go to all these different places because I want to find myself. And I think I was about 25 or 26 when I finally took some time off. You know, I'd never take time off. Look, I just never took time off. Even during school, I moved out, you know, not long after my 16th birthday. So I had to, you know, take care of myself, work for myself, pay my own rent, pay my own bills. Plus, I was training, you know, at a very competitive level, Um, and so I I had never taken any time off. I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to take six months off, and I took six months off, and I travelled the world, and I went to some of the most spiritual places on the planet. And in hindsight, it's kind of, it's a bit, it's very entertaining, but it's a little bit embarrassing because it was almost like everywhere I went, I was waiting for some little Buddha, some little Yoda, some little spiritual dude to rock up and touch me between the eyes and go, mm, I've been waiting for you. And then just like literally hit me and I'm like, oh here I am. I've found myself. And um that moment never came. Like even when we did Machu Picchu, I did the long Machu Picchu where you, you know, you have to walk, climb the mountain and walk the trail and,
1: and yeah. I think it's a four and
0: a half day activity. And I convinced my entire group, 21 people, to treat it as a an ultra marathon or as an ultra race oh Look, we could walk to Machu Picchu or we could fucking run there and then we'll have an extra two days in cuzco afterwards where you guys like to party. You guys, we can party. Because all I want to do is like, I know I'm going to find myself here and then I'd go there and I wasn't there. I know I'm going to find myself here. And so I convinced 21 people to run Machu Picchu trail. You know, we had people dropping like flies from altitude sickness, but it was hilarious because the 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 two pe- the three people who finished first was me and two 65-year-old retirees who were just traveling the world as retirees. And um, we smashed it out. We almost killed our, tri- our tribe who was coming with us at the time. But I remember getting there and the, I, I don't even think I really got the opportunity to enjoy Machu Picchu because I've got lots of photos. I walked around the whole site, but everywhere I was looking, I was waiting for some dude, even a fucking llama. I would have taken anything at that point to just spit on me and go, dude, you're here, you've been found. And um, it wasn't until I literally, you know, I did my six, seven months. I was landing, I, I was flying back to Australia. I almost got blown up in Turkey. I don't know if you guys are old, if anyone here is old enough to remember, but in 19, uh, when was it? it? was in 2003, there was a bombing of HSBC and the British consulate in Turkey. And I was actually across the road from the British consulate or just down the road, I should say, when that bomb went off. And so I was in the midst of all that chaos. And I would had oh all these gosh. experiences. I came home, landed. And as the plane landed, it, hit, it dawned on me. I was like, man, I've been looking in the wrong place for the last seven months. But looking out there i need to look in here and i'd already done meditation at this point but um i'd used meditation again as an extrinsic tool i hadn't used it to go inward i'd used it to you know if anything calm the outward and uh, it was at this point you know i think where things really started to shift for me it was a few years later and i went i had a guy that invited me to a spiritual discourse and we had this duster who came over from india and um and this is i guess you could say the the culmination of where my content kind of came from from a 360 degree perspective and not just the business perspective and Mm -hmm. this 28 year old dasa you know he basically was born into a monastery grew up in a monastery meditated his whole life came out and did a three-hour discourse on life love spirituality in the universe and how the internet is reflecting our consciousness and then at the end of it he goes i'd like to give everyone a blessing." And he goes, we call it a diksha. You Westerners call it a oneness blessing. The reason you Westerners call it a oneness blessing is because you want to measure everything. And so when we give people these diksha's, you wanted to look at their brains under an fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging system. And what we identified is it's a part of the brain that's responsible for separation, slows down. Wow. And the part of the brain responsible for connection becomes more activated. And then he went on to say how the part of the brain responsible for separation, is the part of the brain responsible for war, I challenge, what do you mean? I've studied neurology, neuro, neurobiology, neurochemistry, and also psychology. So at this point, I was like, there's no part of the brain responsible for it. It's a cultural issue. And he goes, No. Well, when you take a part of the brain that makes you feel separate from your environment, okay, and you've got extreme levels of activation, and you've got two people that have that same level of activation, but then you've got different cultural, religious, you know, philosophical beliefs that are in conflict, what have you got? Individual level, you've got conflict. At a, you know, cultural level, you've got war. And I was like, Okay, touche. And the part wow. of the brain that slows down is called the parietal lobe, and it's responsible for a range of different functions and so sure enough, that was on a i think it was like a seven thirty on a Tuesday evening, no Monday evening it was like seven thirty on a monday evening and then three fifty eight uh the following Tuesday, the very next day uh I suffered a massive stroke um and interestingly enough, like from the moment the stroke on set I, I won't go into the whole detail, but you know, I remember I was standing in my kitchen at the time my PA was talking to me, and all of a sudden I just felt this warm sensation on my chest. And she looks at me and she goes, Kerwin, you don't look okay. You need to sit down. And I literally looked down. And as I looked down, my, the t- my tongue just fell out of my mouth and I just had drool just pouring out like a tap. And I just started laughing. I was like, oh my God, what the heck's happening here? And so I went to sit down or squat down onto the cold. Um, tiles and she's put your hands on the ground, ground yourself. And I tried to put my hands on the ground and only one hand, and I didn't even know this at the time I had one, my right hand was on the ground and I could feel the cold, of the tiles and my left hand was on the ground and I could feel the cold, of the tiles, but then I felt my body jerking. And I looked over and my PA, she was grabbing my left hand because it was twisted up near my face and she was trying to pull it down. And I, I remember very clearly going, hang on a second. I can feel the ground with my left hand, and I'm I'm, I'm like touching it, I'm like tapping it. Wow! My left hand is up near my face, and I'm going, okay, there's something very weird going on. And I didn't resist, I didn't fight, I didn't get scared. I leant into it. She laid me down, and then next thing I know, I got taken to um, I don't know what kind of a space. It wasn't like a tunnel. It was just dark, and if anything, all I could see were were like stars in a night sky. And I literally remember thinking, Oh my god, I've tuned into the mobile phone network because all I could hear was all these voices overlapping and i heard my pa's voice going i'm going to call an ambulance and i'm like no don't listen she's like listen i said yes listen listen to the voices what are they saying and <laughs> poor girl she's freaking out i'm i'm trying to listen to what these voices are saying because there was this one dominant feminine voice that i was just trying to make out and then all of a sudden everything went quiet and i got taken to another place and again it was just dark it wasn't like it was a different place it was just a different space and then every single thing I thought about just got given to me. Like every single thing, every question I asked, every, like it was the closest thing I can describe it as a near death experience where you reach that pinnacle of you just have total connection with whatever that other side is. And I was asking, and I ask big questions. And in all of my work, I'm always chasing big healings and asking big questions and doing big, deep work. And the deeper the better. And so I was asking these massive questions. And I didn't even realize at the time, it took me a few weeks to remember. I was just given given answer, 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 like download, 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 download. And I was just asking question after question after question, getting download after download after download. And then sure enough, everything went quiet again. And I got taken to another place. Didn't look any different, but just felt different. And I remember being given a very clear choice. You can stay or you can go. And I remember at the time thinking, oh man, because I was 34. And by 34, much like, by 34, I'd probably lived like five or six lifetimes. Like I'm 47 <laughs> yes. now. And I feel like I've lived about 15 lifetimes. And that's the beautiful thing about my life. If I die tomorrow, the only only regret I have is not being there for my son. But apart from that, I have lived so much of my life. I have not left anything in the tank. I've not left anything on the table. I have invested everything into so many things that I've done. I've tried so many different things and done so many different things that I feel like I've lived. And I remember going, man, if I die today, there's no shame. I've lived. Mm. And then I remember going, you know what if it's if it's my time i'm ready to go and i was almost like not a oh take me now oh, take me from this horrible world i was like you know what i'm excited what's next i'm ready and then as soon as i presented myself i literally sat bolt upright my eyes open uh almost headbutted my pa she's standing by me she's just pouring her her heart and soul out because she's just traumatized uh because i'm sitting there and i've been out for 18 minutes at this point Oh, wow. um, She had had one hand over my head and one hand over my heart. And that's all she, she just felt, I just didn't know what else to do except put my one hand over your head and one hand over your heart and just sit there and just cry. And she said, the amount of energy that was coming out of you was intense. And so anyway, taken to hospital long and the short of it. They said, "Um, yeah, you've had a massive stroke. And I was like, Oh, okay. And I said, and they said, yeah, you had a stroke in the parietal lobe. And they're like, is there any reason you can think of as to why you've had a stroke in the parietal lobe? And I was like, well, there was this Indian dude that I saw last night right? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, these blessings slow the parietal dope down. Maybe mine just slowed down so much. It fucking like literally had to start up again and they dismissed it. And I was like, there's scientific evidence. They didn't want to even look at it. And uh, long and the short of it, I spent uh, about two weeks in hospital, every test on the sun. they couldn't conclusively say any reason as to why I had the stroke. Um, it was kind of interesting, but I did have some effects. I lost the ability to communicate properly. I, I couldn't put the words in the right order. I'd be putting the words out of order constantly. And I had a 15 second memory. The only good thing that a 15 second memory is good for is hiding your own Easter eggs, but it was a little early. So you <laughs> know, I was going into conversations where people would come and doctors would come and talk to me or people would come and visit me. Like literally every 15 seconds, someone would hit the reset button and I'd be like, Oh fuck, what were we talking about? And some wow. people I've, I've since heard that some people's lives, that some people just live that way. But for me, I was, I was like, Oh my God, what we, and I, I got to the point where I was so sick of asking people to remind me what they're saying. I stopped trying to remember, and I just sat in the feeling of how does it feel to listen to this person? And so it gave me an incredible reintroduction to my intuition, which had always been strong in my life, but I'd neglected it for a long time. And then the doctor said, this could be permanent. You know, you could have, cause I had a 20, a 20, uh, a piece of scar tissue that was two and three quarter centimeters in my parietal Massive. They're like, okay, wow. what we can't work out is you should be at the very least severely disabled. Okay. And at best you should be dead. Like there's, we can't work out why you're not at the very least dead or severely disabled. Like something's going to miss here. And we can't tell you why it's happened. And I'm like, there's an Indian dude. And I didn't want to have a bar of it. <laughs> but um, they said, look, we, we imagine that you'll be off work for at least 12 months. I was back on stage, back at work four weeks later, back on stage six weeks later. And I always used to just leave the 20 minutes of every presentation prior to getting into my content where I'd just riff and I'd just talk to the audience and I'd allow the audience to feed and just read and allow the content to go just to set the the presentation up. But I was always talking about business. Always. That was just my my, my thing. I was always into performance psychology. Performance psychology was a big part of my jam, but I was always teaching the business. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, all this information just started coming out of my mouth. Mm. I had no idea where it came from this continued to happen for the next nine months. I bought a little book and I started drawing all the diagrams and making all the notes. I even traveled. Cause a lot of it was around uh, physiology. A lot of it was around biology, neurochemistry, neurology, uh, quantum mechanics, particle physics, um, you know, regulation, stress regulation, and emotional regulation, energetic regulation. And, you know, after, after two years of building this book, I, I started to really question like, where's this come from? This isn't mine. Okay. Right. I've never read this anywhere. You know, since then I've consumed an enormous amount of content and information on quantum mechanics, particle physics, neurology, neurobiology, neurochemistry, physiology, and everything in between, neuroanatomy. But at the time I had no no real framework for that. I even traveled to CERN where the large hadron collider is in Geneva and interviewed their top physicists just to validate what was coming out of it because I just didn't want to be full of shit. I didn't want one of those guys going, oh, this came to me. And and that's where I put together an incredible body of work that I called the power to create, which where the basis of it is, I call it the user's manual, you know, because my philosophy is you're a trillion dollar piece of biotechnology, Amy. You're a trillion dollars in a box. If I could replicate you and put you in a box and I could replicate you and put you on a shelf and sell you, that as IP, that's a trillion dollar piece of IP. And we are, every single one of us, we're a trillion dollars worth of IP. The amount of money, there has been trillions of dollars spent in, in, in computer engineering just to do the very basics of replicating the human brain. And they're not even close. And they've invested trillions of dollars. There's been trillions of dollars been invested in biotechnology to be able to replicate, you know, do the things that the human body does naturally. But no one ever gave us a user's manual. We get a greater walkthrough. We get more of a user's manual if we buy a mobile fucking phone than we do when <laughs> we get born. And so for right. me, this this body of work that I came to the world with, you know, I call it it's called power to create, but I call it the user's manual because it looks at every aspect of life and it gives us a walkthrough on how do we perform and one of the most important aspects of performance. And I am obsessed when it comes to performance, whether it be performance as a dad, you know, performance as an athlete, you know, performance as an entrepreneur, you know, performance as a leader, performance as a salesman, performance as a marketer. Like I am obsessed with what are the things that if you do them, what are the 20 percenters? Okay. And there's only a few, you only get given a couple of 20%ers in terms of the things that you do that can create massive uplifts and performance. Great. And then every now and then you get a, maybe one or two 10 percenters, you get a few 5 percenters, but then you get dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of 1%. And that's been my life's work. My life work has been studying performance. And when we talk about, and I know this has been a very long winded answer to your question, I do apologize if I've taken it the wrong way, but it's been perfect for where it needs to go. One of the keys is the physical body. And our ability to remain conscious in situations that want to drive us out of consciousness are critical in order to maintain perspective and performance. And one of the major things that prevents us from remaining coherent, whether it be neurologically, intellectually, or biophysically coherent is our autonomic nervous systems activation and how well we are able to um, regulate our autonomic nervous system, regulate our emotional system regulate our self-communication system. These are the fundamentals of performance. And because when you look at emotions, you know, or stress, stress is the big one. The reason that, you know, elite professional athletes can do what they do and compete at the highest level and be paid millions of dollars is because they have learned how to regulate stress under the most intense and high pressure situations. It's not that high, high performers and elite professional athletes don't experience stress. They absolutely do. They just have a different toolbox. Okay. They have a different relationship. They don't go, Oh my God, I'm stressed. I can't perform. They go stress. Great. That's, and this is what we know. Stress is a key ingredient in performance. If you're not able to, you know, not only introduce stress, but if you're not able to actually use stress as an instrument for performance, you're fucked because at any form of elite practice, there is an inherent stress that's required for performance, whether that be extrinsic or extrinsic. But when you look at the effects of stress, you know, within seven minutes of having an autonomic nervous activation, fight, flight, or freeze, you lose 30 to 50% of your IQ, you know, just based on how your body's um, gut, based on how your gut's ability to be able to digest certain proteins. Now we battle test that. And and I'd say to you, Amy, how many times have you done stupid shit under the influence of stress? (laughs) Right. Right? So many. You and me both. But then what happens when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a mum? when you're a dad, when you're in a, leadership situation, you can't go, well, I just need to go and calm down and then I'll make my decisions. No, you have to keep going. So if you make a bad call and you're already stressed, you've got half of an IQ. Okay. You make a bad call, chances are whatever that call is, is going to produce more stress. And we end up in the symbolic loop of stress and dysfunction, (laughs) stress and stupidity. Whereas what we've got to understand is there are certain practices, certain tools that we can use that very effectively and very quickly regulate the stress hormones out of our body because when we have stress, cortisol goes up, adrenaline goes up, cortisol is carcinogenic, cortisol destroys testosterone, cortisol destroys estrogen, yes. cortisol is, a, is neural oxidative, so it basically makes you stupid, fat, and cancerous. You know, There's not a lot of good things. It does give you a, a short burst of energy, which when harnessed can be used quite well, but outside of that, cortisol is not the most friendly drug on the planet as a hormone. And then when we then flip that and we start introducing emotions, emotions are a spectrum and they're a spectrum condition that are essentially activated based on let's call it neurological networks and so you have an experience your brain has already determined what that experience means based on how you mm-hmm. programmed your brain to interpret that experience and then it tickles a part of your brain called the hypothalamus which releases a combination of neural peptides that go down through the pituitary gland into the bloodstream and they release these neural peptides now what's a peptide you're a trainer what's a peptide <laughs> it's a form I, it's a protein It's a protein. And so those peptides go down through your bloodstream, connect with every single cell, every single piece of tissue. Because what is everything made of? Skin cells, tissue cells, blood cells, bone cells, hair cells. Connects with every single cell in your body. And when you experience an emotion, depending on the combination of peptides, it will determine the oscillatory rate, the vibration in which your cells vibrate. And when you're vibrating at a higher frequency, that is representative of an excited person. Because you notice when people are excited, they talk really quickly, they move really fast. That's, that's a, a literal observation of what's happening at a cellular level. When people are vibrating at a lower rate of frequency, you know, depending on the combination of peptides, they're vibrating at a, a lower rate of frequency. They're often experiencing, you know, lower resonance emotions. So sadness, anger, depression, okay? And what we've got to understand is those peptides are a fuel source for cells. Cells require proteins in order to grow. And you know what fat adapted is, right? So fat adapted is w- when you, if you are constantly putting um, complex and simple carbohydrates into your body, your body never learns to utilize fat as a fuel source because it's always trying to consume blood sugars. And so you have mm. highs and lows and highs and lows and highs and lows. And so part of you know, developing a relationship with you know, uh, ketosis is learning how to you know, remove certain substances from your body for extended periods of time so that your body transitions from using one source of fuel to another source of fuel. And so you transition, it's the hardest thing to transition is be- between a blood sugar energy supply and a fat energy supply. And when you become fat adapted, you're now, your body's now adapted to using fat as an energy source. Man, I've got a nuclear power pan in- sitting on my six pack. So I've got energy for days and I don't have to eat sometimes for an entire Rage. day, but I've still got enormous amounts of energy because my body's fat adapted. Whereas if I'm not fat adapted, I'll get to like 11am and I'll crash because my body hasn't converted. Well, this is what we've got to understand our pro, our cells require proteins for growth. And if we're constantly bombarding them with emotions, you know, mm. unconscious chosen emotions, we become emotionally adapted. And so our cells start using emotions as a fuel source in order to become, in order to feed. And so if, you, and this is what we've got to understand, emotions use the same receptors in the brain, the same receptors in the brain that narcotics, barbiturates, alcohol, and other substances do. So, emotions actually mimic the effects, or I should say, drugs mimic the effects of emotions, which also indicates two things. Number one, emotions intoxicate us. Right. How many times have you done something stupid under the influence of being really excited, sobered up, gone, fuck, I probably shouldn't have done that? Totally. How many times have you said something you probably shouldn't have when you're really angry or sad, but then you've sobered up and gone, fuck, I probably shouldn't have done that?
1: Too you many know, times
0: they intoxicate <laughs> us and they lead us to doing stupid things. Why? Because they work on the same receptors that drugs do. And when we take drugs, we're intoxicated. But what we've also got to understand is cells are adaptable units. They're biologically malleable, adaptable, and they adapt to their environment. And so if you're constantly bombarding your cells with sadness, you might've started out with, you know, three receptors for sadness, three receptors for happiness, three receptors for anger, three receptors for joy. But if you're just bombarding that with anger. You go through, what, what do cells constantly do? They're splitting and dividing and evolving mm-hmm. to their environment, splitting, dividing and evolving to environment. But if they identify, wow, we seem to be getting a lot of you know, food or fuel sources from this particular type of peptide. As we adapt, let's get rid of one or two of the other keyholes and we'll just produce another keyhole for anger. And then before you know wow. it, you have a cellular setup where people are addicted to their emotional experience. And when you've got a body, a mass of these cells That essentially navigate you through this world. It's super easy to get triggered. If you're addicted to anger, man, your body will give you every opportunity to feel angry because it'll, your brain will set it up. Your body will set it up. The situation set up and then you will be like, ah, now I'm being fed, not realizing the whole time. You're actually just like a a drug addict. You're addicted to that behavior. You're addicted to that emotion. And so for me, when we look at the effects on the spectrum of consciousness that emotions have, when you're in a highly charged, positive mood you know, you're like, ah, super ecstatic. In order for you to stay in that state, your psychology has to ignore 50% of its reality to maintain that perspective. We live in a dual-natured reality where, you know, from the ground up, everything is made of equal parts of positive and negative energy from an atomic perspective. But as it gets up into the Newtonian and the physical perspective, that doesn't change. And that's why hindsight is such a beautiful thing because people are going to say, well, there's no good or bad. There's just the perspective that makes it so. Humans are the only (laughs) fucking animal on the planet that label things as being good or bad. Nature just goes, well, that's just how it is. You know, when a tree falls in the forest, all the other trees don't stand around and go, Oh, fucking Errol, we really loved him. Oh, it's <laughs> so sad that, you know, he's fallen down. No, all the trees realize, um, based on the intelligence of nature, that Errol's going to get recycled. Errol is going to be recompositioned. Errol is going to be a part of every single one of us in the next, you know, six to eighteen months to six years, depending on how long it takes for him to break down. Whereas humans We don't see duality. We see polarity. And so when we're in a highly polarized, highly excitable mood, we can't see the polar opposite. And so by virtue of that, we are now ignoring 50% of our reality. Now, let's battle test this. How many times have you been put in a situation where you've been so excited about something, someone's done such a good job selling you on something, you've got so excited that you didn't think about any potential downside? And then sure enough, you didn't but sure enough as a result of you not considering it that downside actually comes to fruition you're like "Fuck! i didn't even think about that but totally how many times have you been in a negative pessimistic perspective not considered the upside of an opportunity that's brought to you you go no 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 that opportunity is not for me and then six months later like "Fuck! i really should have considered the upside of that
1: yeah so to me
0: performance is a game of consciousness and the things that affect our consciousness is stress stress Literally removes 50% of your IQ, which contributes an enormous amount to you being able to be coherent and conscious. Now you, you lop on an emotion, an extreme emotion. You've now just lost another 50% of your reality. You're now dealing with a 25% piece of reality. In a world where your brain is processing 16 trillion bits of information every one second, but as the average bear, you're only aware of about 21 to maybe, if you're lucky, 2,000 bits of information. Our brain is a cognitive miser, constantly filtering information and only serving what it's deemed to be important. And for the most part, we've never programmed our mind to deem as awareness as being important, as consciousness as being important. Yet, consciousness and self-awareness are the keys to highest performance at the greatest level.
1: Wow. Okay. So I'm blown away by everything. I'm like, okay, I, I need notes for this because, <laughs> you know, most people. I mean, I love what you said. A really good point about you know the how we interpret things. I really do see that many times as the separator in that. I may have a physiological, you know, I've got a lot of trauma and let's say that I get triggered by someone that really it's even probably just similar, something similar to my past may not even be, you know, directed towards me. I will get the physical stomach churning. And I've, you know, before, of course, when I was just on automatic, you know, it's like I'd just go through the, and, and I'd continue to even say to myself, well, it's just a stressful time. And we hear this all the time, right? From people like, oh, I'm just going through some stress. Now I'm able to at least stop and go, is this truth? And, and really even stop and say, what is, this, what is this showing me right now? Because I tend to go to a place of shame. So, one thing, you know, when I worked with um, Nicola Perra, I, I, before she became huge and famous, I worked with her in the one to one, which was incredible. And she'd always have me pause and be like, what could you be learning from this? You know, what you know, because I could tend to, especially being a high performer, I want to be good at it right away, especially once I get awareness. And I've had to learn through, you know, especially, you know, regulating emotions, it's not been an easy thing. I still have times after years and years of practicing something, I'll still fly off the handle, you know. What would you say to that? Because obviously you've worked so much through, you know, I'm assuming meditation has been a big one. And you already pointed out something to me because you said. You know, not just to calm the outside, because that is the, the reason why I got into it was, oh, then mm. I'll be able to handle the stresses. But you said, it, you know, to calm the you, the inside of the you inside. versus, has that been one of the biggest, you know, changes I, or shifts for you? I,
0: I I am a black, I guess, it's, I feel like I'm a third down black belt in meditation because I meditate anywhere between an hour to four hours a day, it hasn't always been that way. I have a very strong discipline about med- meditation, but to me, meditation is one of the tools. Do you know what I mean? And every tool that we get given. So for example, um, to me, the tool that you, know, that you were referring to when you worked with um, the holistic psychologist was the tool to be able to balance. So what's, what's the benefit of this? What skills knowledge am I gaining from this? How is this gonna make me better, faster, stronger, sharper today than I am right now? You know, because hindsight's a beautiful thing. Hindsight's an incredible tool because oftentimes something will bad will happen to us. But then six months, six weeks, six months, six years later, we look back and go, oh, you know what? If that bad thing hadn't happened, I wouldn't be where I am now. And you know what? That wasn't actually bad at all. And so to me, that hindsight's a tool, but we don't have to wait six years. We can just start asking the questions now. Force ourselves. What's the benefit? There is none. Find it. You know, what skills, knowledge, and experience am I getting as a result of this? How's this going to make me better, faster, sharper, stronger tomorrow than I am today? But that's a practice. Right. Okay. Being aware that you're in an autonomic stress response and actually having the self-awareness to first of all go, oh, I'm actually stressed. And then having the, the awareness to use the tools and go, well, step one, I've got to be aware. Step two, I need to regulate my breathing. So I'm mm-hmm. gonna I'm going to regulate my breathing right now. Step three. Okay. What is the meaning I'm giving this moment right now? Okay, it's stressful. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. You are just choosing to label it as stressful. What is it? What's the benefit of this? What skills, knowledge, and experience am I gaining from this? Because our goal in stress is to associate gratitude because gratitude elevates DHEA and DHEA lowers cortisol. DHEA increases metabolism. It's uh, anabolic in nature. Uh, it's a neural protectant, It fights off cancers. It's an incredibly powerful tool. Meditation, it's just a tool. So what do we do with tools? We practice them. See, my life is fundamentally, and I've only just worked this out. My life is fundamentally really fucking boring. It is. And for the most part, I do a lot of crazy and exciting stuff. But fundamentally, 95% of my life is boring as batshit. Do you know why? Because all I'm doing is routines. I have a meditation routine. I have a mm-hmm. yoga routine. I have a breath work routine. Okay, I have a, uh, you know, 38 different psychological routines that I'll deploy depending on whatever situation I'm in. My whole life is governed by routines. And when you have routines for everything, guess what life becomes after a while? boring. Pretty boring. <laughs> it does. And so innate human nature means, well, I've got to fuck some shit up in order to get some chaos happening so I can have excitement in my life. Right. And if we have mm-hmm. the awareness to be in tune with that, we can start making more conscious choices of, okay, I'm feeling bored right now. What can I do to actually excite myself rather than, you know, activating or triggering my partner or activating and triggering something with my family or activating, and triggering something within me. So to me, there's no like meditation is a 20%er breath work you know it's like easily a 10%er the it's just the outline of some of the processes I've given you right now learning how to regulate stress that's a 5%er learning how to regulate emotion same process for stress you know that's another 5%er but you know one of the most important tools in learning how to regulate stress and regulate emotion is first of all being aware that you're actually in an emotion yes that you're in stress because how many times have you gone out to a you know a place uh, where there's where there's service of alcohol and someone gets too drunk and someone goes mate, you've had too much drink. You know, I'm not drunk. Right. I'm not angry, right. I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I'm not sad, it's just it's just my feelings, like whatever, right? Because oftentimes we deny our feelings because we're so yes. used to living with them, we're not even aware of when they're present. And I know when I started going through my own performance. Um breakdown when I started to break down every area of my life, I, I started wearing this technology that HeartMath bring out that shows you a coherence score based on a range of different variables. And I put this thing on and immediately went bing into red. And I was like, you are now very stressed. I'm like, I don't feel stressed. I don't feel stressed at all. But it's like ding 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 ding. You are fucking your autonomic system is fried. I've right. had
1: fatigue,
0: <laughs> you know, I've had burnout, but I don't feel stressed. And what I realized was my baseline for feeling good was already fucking stressed. And so I had to wear this piece of tech for three months using breath work and practices and meditation and, you know, and coherent strategies to get to a point where all of a sudden my body actually for probably the first time in 25, 30 years, actually learned, learned what does stress not feel like? What does my body feel like in the absence of stress? And now I've got a baseline to know, you know, what does my body feel like in the absence of emotions? Just so I know what it feels like. And so now whenever I feel an emotion brewing, certain organs start tingling so i know when an emotion is coming on if i've got stress i've got all the indicators i know when stress is starting to come on and i can just intervene if it's required but what you've also got to understand it's not in the absence of stress that we become stronger it's in the pursuit of stress using the right tools that builds a level of resilience that makes us better able to deal with the stress we don't want to live in a in a bubble wrap world or a world where we're wrapping ourselves in cotton wool, where we avoid stressful situations. We want to be able to expose ourselves to stress, expose ourselves to triggers in functional ways where we can identify the escalation of, whether it be biochemistry or neurochemistry and go, okay, I'm now reaching the point where I can't control it. Now I walk away and mm. I calm the system down. Like you don't sit there and do you know 100, 100 bicep curls if you want to grow your bicep, do you? You load the bar right. up, and you do it to the point where you're getting a massive burn. And when it gets too much, you put the bar away and you go and have a rest. You do that two or three times and then you don't train biceps again for another three days or six days. That's stress. It is there to be strengthened, but we've got to work it out. We've got to know what are the weights that when we put on ourselves, it works the right muscle group. And how do we do it in an intelligent way versus an unconscious way where we're just, you know, uh, a passenger, you know, versus the architect, the director.
1: I love that. And that's probably why, you know, like you, you know, success, a lot of times can be defined in how you're going to handle, because it's not a matter Mm. of if it's how you are going to handle stress that's brought your way. Right. And what you're going to do in those moments, what, you know, separates, because I think a lot of people think, oh, if I have more money. If I have more of this, if I have the better body, whatever, like, I'm not going to have those things. Whereas I'm usually the first coach, the moment someone says, I had a stressful week, I'm like, all right, what strategy do you have in place? Because we already know this is going to happen again, the first, the last, you know, versus most people have not stopped to even ask themselves that question. They're kind of like, it's just a stress week, or it might even be just words that they say. I mean, I learned the power of that seven years of chemotherapy, my notorious words to almost anyone, I would say, I'm not hungry because I didn't have an appetite, right? Yeah. Fast forward, I get taken off chemotherapy. It took almost four months for my body to, because now April, I'm now finally at a place where I have an appetite, and I don't even have chemo in me. But that's a lot of the programming of what I've always said. I've had to tell myself that I'm hungry and that I want to eat, and that it, you know, and and it's been very powerful to see. So. Now I see even the power of, well, I can channel, you know, think of how many times per day before are ask to eat something. I easily said it 10 to 15 times a day that I'm not hungry. So the power of doing something positive that you say to yourself, you know, all day long, finding ways to trigger that, you know, what you say your body does become, you know, I watched that so many times I mean, I stopped asking for, you know, um, anytime they were giving me the sides of a new medication, I said, I don't want to know. I don't really need to know because I know the power of the placebo or the nocebo, and I'm not about, you know, I'd rather not, you know. So tools
0: Tools are everything. If we have no tools in our toolbox, you know, we're we're not going to be a very good carpenter. And some people's tools for stress and emotion is substance, you know, it's behavior. It's, you know, in most cases, not necessarily unless you've learned well, unless you've been trained well, it's dysfunctional substance, it's dysfunctional behavior. Um, and it's just like, okay, what, what do I replace this behavior with in order to be able to, you know, have a, a better effect for increased performance over the long term? How do I make performance sustainable? You don't make performance sustainable by having to drink two glasses of wine or half a bottle of wine or a bottle of wine at the end of every night in order to chill out. You know, That is a deplenishing rate of returns and a diminishing returns at some point are going to lead to a level of burnout. Totally.
1: So I know with the pandemic, you're not obviously traveling and I mean,
0: no, not as much as I'd like to be
1: where can people, you know, I mean, sign up, because here's the thing, like I said, I'm yep. I'm calling you the Andy Frazella, Joe Dispenza, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Tony Robbins, all in one, you know, anyone that, you know, is in business, and even in not, because I find that when I found you, I didn't even I wasn't even looking, say, for a business coach. And yep. all of your resources just helped me personally, then I realized, Oh, my gosh, this guy, like, has it all. So where can they well, find you and what do you have going on right now
0: you can find me like we've got a massive presence on facebook instagram youtube tiktok linkedin um and it's interesting you know i run two. essentially i don't have a lot of programs we have got power to create which is for everybody which uh, we're bringing back next year which is the user's manual and it's probably the most dedicated delicate intricate process driven performance blueprint you'll find anywhere in the world for anyone regardless of what you want to do and then we've got Nail It and Scale It, um, which is a three-day implementation. It's all about learning how to master the aspects of business that relate to nailing the foundations and then being able to scale to a point of freedom. And then we have K2 Elite, which is the clients that we work with business capacity over the long term. And you know, what's really interesting is I have probably about one in three of my clients that will you know, do 2x to 10x within their first 18 months of working with me. You know i probably have one of the best records per capita for the amount of clients that i have of anyone in the world in the business space but the reason being is our business processes are fundamentally world-class but we don't just focus on business and that's why a disproportionate amount of my content is psychology because a disproportionate amount of work that i do with my clients it's not on the business it's on the performance side it's on emotional it's on mental you know it's on trauma you know so many business owners are walking around with unresolved trauma What you've got to understand, performance is a game of fluidity and flow. If you're carrying baggage, you're not going to be fluid. Come out of flow, you're going to be weighted down. And so, one of the things that I do with my clients sounds a bit weird, but I do an enormous amount, of disproportionate amount of work on their psychology, on their mental, on their physical, so that they become you know able to produce more energy, sustain more energy, have better mental clarity, have better mental health, have better relationships, and then by virtue, you know, business is easy once you got that shit together.
1: I love it. You are exactly aligned with you know how i believe people are so surprised when they find out i'm a fat loss coach because 90 percent of what i talk about is you changing your identity you becoming the better you you getting clarity on that so i love it i'm so thankful for you um and coming on here and i know my audience and just the people that you know follow me here are going to now have a new favorite aussie for sure so thank you (laughs) for being on here
0: my pleasure thank you amy
1: Okay, I'm on a mission. As you know, if you've been following along, I have a goal to be a top 100 podcast. And it's less about that top 100 and more about, I want to make an impact. I want more people to hear effort and and learn from all the mistakes that I've made along with me bringing on really special guests for you. So my ask here is this. I want you to screenshot this episode today and share it on your social media. Share it with a friend. You know, tag me in it you know, go give me a review. Of course, if you're really feeling it and rate me, you know, I, this is the only way things are going to get seen here. And in a big world of tons and tons of podcasts, I'm hoping that you're going to choose mine and help me on my mission.